0: Welcome back this evening. appreciate you being here tonight. I don't know if you appreciate me being here tonight or not, but here I am. On Sunday nights we are discussing God's amazing grace. And as part of that, we are looking at stories in the Old Testament and the New uh, where we see God's grace and defining that as God's goodness, His unmerited favor, bestowed to men and women throughout the story of the Bible. Tonight I want to start with a question. Have you ever been forgotten for anything? A group of people were going somewhere and someone missed the memo to tell you and invite you. You've been falsely accused of doing something that you didn't do and slandered. Have you ever um, come to a point in your life where you wonder what God was up to? If God remembered you, or if you were just too small for Him to see? Well, our story tonight looks at a man who was forgotten and falsely accused, treated horribly, and uh, was the subject of lies and lots of other falsities. Most all of us have at some point. But my question to all of those questions is not, did it happen to you? Because probably most of us could answer in the affirmative to at least one of those. My question is, how did you react when you were treated unfairly? How did you respond when you were passed over or forgotten? What was your response When you were falsely accused, what was your reaction when you were hurt by someone you cared deeply about? One person told me, and I believe it was very wise counsel, he said that the greatest opportunity you have to show yourself a Christian is when you are wronged unfairly. When something bad happens to you that's truly not your fault, the the result of your bad decisions. I've let that counsel roll around in my mind and heart over the years, and I really think, although our character tonight would have not have concerned himself greatly with whether or not people viewed him as a Christian, Christ would not yet appear on the scene for a long time. But certainly, his faith in God and how people viewed that was certainly under under test for much of his life. Our character's name is Joseph, and his story is found in most of Genesis. We're going to focus on Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 21. If you are a Bible follower alonger, longer, then you can join me there. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Genesis chapter 50, starting in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead... They said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father.'" So they bring in dear old dad's legacy here. They invoke God's name. Verse verse 18. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant it evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. We're going to look at Joseph's story, not in depth, but I I take you beginning with the end in mind, because those are six or seven verses that are easy to read and perhaps you've heard them read before you've heard that passage discussed but it is so much easier for us to read it when you put yourself in Joseph's shoes or sandals as the case may be those that that moment with his brothers was a testing moment because this would have taken him back many many years to when it all began so we're going to look at that tonight and I hope you'll follow along to understand a little bit about Joseph's story and what makes these verses so poignant. If you go into, uh, first give you a little background about Joseph, he was one of 12 sons born to Jacob, born in a town called Haran. He was the 11th son of Jacob, the first son of his beloved Rachel, who up to that point had been sterile for seven years. He was the favored child, born in Jacob's later years, so perhaps there was special meaning. Jacob would have been about 91 when Joseph was born. He was the son of, as I said, his his favorite wife, Rachel. There were two, Rachel and Leah. Um, There was a, a bit of favoritism, as we learned about with Jacob in Esau's story. Favoritism kind of ran in the family. Um, how many of you were the favored child? Raise your. I'm just teasing. I don't need to go through that. I don't want to bring up any sore spots and family dysfunctions here. Jacob, uh, I'm sorry. Joseph worked first as a shepherd for his father. In fact, all the sons, near as we can tell, worked as shepherds, uh, managing Jacob's land and the animals there in Canaan. But Joseph, though he did the same work, was more loved. He was given, as made famous by many vacation Bible schools around the world, a richly ornamented robe. Or, made famous by a musical, a coat of many colors. Uh, Similar to uh, a coat of many colors, a richly ornamented robe, there's another area in Scripture where this points us to this idea that it was really more reserved for royalty. Uh, Those were the people who, who wore richly colored robes. So, it wasn't just... Subtle. Jacob was very clear that Joseph was his beloved son. And um, if we, without venturing too much into previous lessons, he was part of a pretty dysfunctional family. There's dad and mom, which is Rachel. There's Aunt Leah. There's a stepmom and concubines, Bilhah and Zilpah. There's one brother. There's six brothers, and I call them that because they'd be the son of your aunt, but also your brother, and four half brothers. So, Again, Jerry Springer uh, is is the picture you get. And I bring that up when we cover this section of Scripture because often we sit and listen about stories of people in the Bible and assume that there's no way on earth that they could relate to us. They don't know what we've been through. They don't know what my family's like. They don't know the drama we have around the Thanksgiving table. To which I say they would argue the same in reverse. They understood very much dysfunction. In fact, the scriptures say for the blatant favoritism which their dad showed Joseph, the scriptures specifically say they could not speak, this is his brothers, all 11 of them, that they could not speak a kind word to him. It wasn't just there was, you know, they could be nice to each other. I mean, they, they had zero good to say to Joseph. Because of his dreams didn't make things any better. He had these dreams, and there were sheaves of grain bowing down to his. And the brothers become incredulous at that. And then the sun and the moon, the eleven stars, are bowing down to him. You know, may say, well, Joseph, we didn't understand the full story. We may have saw that Joseph had a bit of an ego problem as well. And the brothers were even more incensed with the second dream. Even his dad, Jacob, rebuked him for that one. But the scriptures say that Jacob kept the matter in mind because, of course, as we know, Jacob, whose brothers, whose brother also hated him, was familiar with God working in dreams, and so he kept it in mind. Now, Genesis chapter thirty-seven, if you care to follow along and not li- not just look at this preacher sway back and forth, chapter thirty-seven, verses twelve and following. he was betrayed by his own brothers you know, their jealousy and their hatred was has already we already talked about that in the background but you know if you have something against a brother or a sibling you know there's a little animosity there holidays are somewhat awkward my guess is that it probably hasn't elevated to the point where you say you know what i'm just ready to end this guy And it's enough that one brother would feel that way but all 11 of them, well maybe minus Reuben, came to this conclusion. Um, So they basically they were going to kill him. They were going to leave him for dead in about verse 18. And then Reuben comes back and says no, no, let's, let's not kill him. Let's put him in a dry well. And Reuben's it doesn't say this in scripture, but Reuben's plan was to come back and retrieve him at a later time. So the other brothers say, well you know, if we're going to do that, let's at least make some money off of him. Let's sell him. Verse 26 or so. So he's sold into slavery. And speaking of dysfunctional family, he's sold into slavery uh, to the wrong side of the family tree, back to the Ishmaelites. You remember the story of Isaac. So they do all that. They leave Joseph for dead. And then they deceive their father in the whole matter. Uh, knowing his heart would surely be broken, uh, they take the ornamented robe. Uh, they put animal blood onto it, which I always presume mean they made a sacrifice. An intimate, in, innocent creature gave its life to be a part of their plot. They they dip the coat in blood and bring it to Jacob. And very clearly, he is heartbroken. Um, that's verse 31. Jacob mourned deeply, tore his robes. And yet, despite all of this, as bad as the story looks, certainly from Jacob's perspective, and maybe as much as the brothers think, okay, Joseph's out of our hair now. No, it's, the story's not over. There's this phrase that's going to be repeated a few other times in Joseph's story. Perhaps you've heard this mentioned before. It's the phrase, God was with Joseph, but the Lord was with Joseph. And this is a recurring theme in his story. So, he's betrayed by his brothers, but then he's uh, taken and sold to a man named Potiphar. Potiphar uh, enjoys having Joseph around because he is exceptionally good at his job. He's a steward who brings a blessing upon Potiphar's house. So, Joseph ends up back in Egypt. His circumstances change, but his relationship with God does not. Uh, It seems as though, I'm going to read chapter 39, verse 3 here, um, as another appearance of this phrase. The Lord, verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man and was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him and made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house, over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food which he ate. Abraham's children have both both the blessing uh, that was given to them as an inheritance, but not, they don't just have a blessing, they are a blessing. And we'll see this, in again, uh, not just here at Potiphar's house, but we'll see that he was a blessing where he went, and it was successful wherever he went. What's interesting in this part is that we know, of course, the Egyptians did not worship Jehovah God. They worship many different gods. Okay, They didn't know Joseph's God, but yet, Potiphar was wise enough to say that guy gets the job done. That guy doesn't just get the job done, he's successful in doing whatever he does. Uh, someone's got to be with him. Someone's got to be doing this. This has to be his God. And so, he says, hey, if this guy's being blessed by the Lord, I, I might as well put all my investments with this guy. So he does. He doesn't concern himself with anything except, what am I going to eat today? What a cool testament to Joseph's faith. Now, in addition to being a man of faith, uh, Joseph is a stud, I think is the, the message translation. Um, he is good-looking. He's young. He's powerful, and uh, as we've already su- said, he's very successful. I know this doesn't happen in our world today, but back then, certain women were attracted to such men. Power and wealth and prestige and honor, and uh, indeed, a certain woman did notice him. The problem was, it was Joseph's master's wife. A dutifully named Potiphar's wife. Mrs. Potiphar, if you will. <clears throat> so she begins hitting him pretty heavy, propositioning him every single day. And Joseph isn't, I mean, he certainly has opportunity, but above the opportunities, he has integrity. He won't even be with her. And he understands, and it's all connected back to his relationship with the Lord. You know, at one point he says, "How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God?" The basis—that's the whole basis for Joseph. I mean, we 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 just said that the basis of his success was his relationship with the Lord, but Joseph viewed it as everything—my integrity, how I handle myself, how I conduct my affairs. If you think this is how he was with. Women who noticed him, I think he was like this in all areas of his life. You don't get to be a good, successful steward, manager, boss, leader, in my opinion, unless you have integrity in all the areas of your life. And that's important. Joseph Joseph understood that. He, He understood the basis of his integrity was God himself. This is not from Joseph's story, but listen to what David said when he recounted his sin with Bathsheba in Psalm fifty-one four. He says, "Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight." Now I thought that was a little strange because you know David certainly sinned against a, a lot of other people involved in that story, but when 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 David was in the process of repenting. He went back to the core of the thing that was broken. The the, the thing that became broken was his relationship with God. When he abused that trust, it affected everything else. His kingship. How he viewed Bathsheba. How he viewed Uriah. How he viewed the generals in his army. You see, when, when that fundamental foundation is broken or there's a crack in it, it affects everything else. And Joseph viewed it the same way. So, He spurs uh, Potiphar, Mrs. Potiphar's advances, and the, the old phrase, Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Well, he was about to understand that long before it was written. But yet his fear of God was greater than his fear of her. Maybe that's a lesson for us, too. Because there will be time in your life for every person of faith in the Lord where you have to decide, is your relationship with God more important than a relationship with someone else? Or money? Or, or things that money can buy? Or power or prestige? You have to choose. My prayer is your, that you will choose wisely. That your fear of God will be greater than your fear of losing whatever else is in competition with God. Potiphar was angry and he put him in prison. And yet, verse 21 of chapter 39. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. And the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Sounds an awfully similar thing to what Potiphar noticed about Joseph. I've been to a lot of leadership seminars, John Maxwell kind of stuff, read books, studied leadership principles. I understand a few things about leadership, but I think at the heart of it, the best leaders are godly men and women who are sincere in their faith and their connection to the Lord. Are there worldly leaders? Are they successful? Yes. But I'm talking about lasting in terms of legacy and influence. It's godly people who last, who are successful, who do well, who are noticed by the world, if, if, they'll put God and His Word and His principles and His Son above all things. I think I've told you before, but I had a man who was very successful in business. And he said, you know, of all the business books I've read, um, I can think most of the principles that I've read written by other authors had their origins right here in the Word of God. So if you study that first, if you'll live by that first, you can have the success that Joseph did. Now that doesn't mean it won't come without trouble. Certainly Joseph's story is evidence of that. The second betrayal is similar to the first betrayal. Though innocent, he was unjustly demoted of his favored position and immediately thrown into a prison. He was violently stripped of his outer covering. The first was the coat of many colors. The second was his outer cloak. But in both cases, the coat of many colors and the cloak, both of those outer coverings were used as evidence, false evidence, in accusing him. And eventually he would be rescued and raised up. Leads us to our third with Joseph. He was forgotten by his fellow prisoners. Because God is with Joseph, he became successful even in prison, which is, in my mind, kind of a hard place to be successful. I mean, you're pretty much at the bottom of the barrel at this point. But he continues, even amongst the prisoners, even amongst the people in charge of the prison, to be acknowledged as a guy who has something that they don't have. He's a great manager for the warden. Well, two new prisoners come in to the Egyptian prison, the king's prison, by the way. This is a, a different than just an everyday prison, so it was a bit of an upscale, uh, but still prison nonetheless, the cupbearer and the baker, uh, who come in about the same time. Now, I tried to do a little research to see if I could find any external evidence that this was at the same time, and, you know, perhaps there was a... A food poisoning conspiracy of the, the Pharaoh and these two being closest to the food. I don't know. It's a lot of speculation. But in any case, something happened in which both these men were involved and they both were brought to prison at the same time. So this happens and these two men, these prisoners now, come and they have these dreams. The cupbearer one of a vine with three branches. And the three branches are, uh, uh, have grapes on them. And the, the, the cupbearer squeezing the grapes into Pharaoh's cup. And he, then the cup is put back into his hand and Joseph says good news this this not this dream is not too bad the the three vines are three days and basically your position will be restored and when you do when you go back to the pharaoh could you give me just one tiny little favor please remember the guy who gave you this good interpretation cuz i've been falsely accused and it's a long story, but I'll write it down someday and people will talk about it. The baker, the second prisoner, says, Ah, oh, well, maybe this is not so bad. I'll hear what this guy has to say. He says, I have this basket about three baskets of bread being on my head. And the birds come and they, they eat the bread. And uh, tell me what exactly that means. He's like, Well, the well, three baskets, sort of similar, it's going to be about three days. Um, but the bad news is you're going to you're going to lose your head in three days. And not in the proverbial sense, in the literal sense. You will lose your head and uh, be eaten by birds. Which uh, I'm sure the baker was none too thrilled. Hope he didn't pay for that interpretation. So these two men have these very similar accounts, but something's going to happen in three days. Lo and behold, it does. Pharaoh has his birthday party, and the prisoner's dreams come true. The pharaoh's cupbearer is restored. Pharaoh's baker is punished in a very severe way. The cupbearer did not make good on his promise, did he? He forgot Joseph. I actually don't know if he promised it. We just know that Joseph asked it. But he forgot Joseph for two long years. But you know who didn't, don't you? I mean, you're a Sunday night crowd. You get it by now, right? God wrote was with Joseph and he remembered him. So back to Genesis chapter 50. Joseph's brothers are worried. Dad's gone. What's he going to do now? He's got all this power. So they hatched this deceptive plan. And Joseph weeps, the scripture says. Why does he weep? Well, the scripture doesn't tell us that. He's Maybe sad to see that they dragged their dad's legacy into this. Perhaps sad to see that they missed out on what God was doing. They thought it was their father Jacob who shielded them from God's from Joseph's wrath. But in fact, it was actually their father Jehovah who shielded them and raised up Jacob. The brothers bowed down, which fulfills the original dream. And they offer themselves as slaves to him. Which is justice. He could have taken it. He could have taken that in retribution for what they had done. But Joseph responds correctly. Perhaps through all this he has learned that God was with him. Even when he was in terrible circumstances. You did this. Is what he says, you did this, you, you planned this, but God did this. You meant harm, but God meant good. You meant to kill me, but God meant to save lives. Despite being treated unfairly, God was with Joseph, and so Joseph remained unshakable. I got normally three or four little takeaways for you. Um, tonight I just have one. I was trying to think, well, is it that God's dreams are bigger than your dreams? Yeah, that's true. Is it that God's timing is better than your timing? This this whole story that we read in a matter of chapters took decades and decades of Joseph's life. Is it that God's justice is always just? All those things are true. But here's the, here's the repeated phrase of Joseph's story. God was with Joseph. And so that's my takeaway. It does not... If God is for you, and it matters very little, who is against you? When Stephen was being martyred, about ready to be stoned, in Acts chapter 7, He says this in verses nine and ten. The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. It's peculiar that Stephen brings up the story of Joseph right before he's about ready to be martyred. This is like a long history lesson. You know, is he just trying to delay the inevitable? No, I think, he, I think he hearkened back to this story for a reason. To be reminded that it didn't matter if, if Stephen was going to lose his life because of Christ. If Christ was for him, it didn't matter how many rocks they threw. If God was with them, if God was with him, it mattered very little who was against him. Jesus is the true and better Joseph. He was betrayed for just a few pieces of silver. He was slandered by those calling for his death by his own brothers. Seemingly forsaken, but not forgotten. And though his enemy intended to harm him, God intended it for our good and the saving of many lives. If you are a Bible follower longer, I will ask you, even though you know we're on the last slide, to turn to Romans chapter 8, follow along, underline, or highlight, whatever your manner of study is, and listen to these words that you've heard before, but hear them again for the first time. With Joseph in mind, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or darkness, or nakedness, or sword? As it is written, no, For your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor the present things nor things to come, nor powers nor heights nor depths nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Have you been wronged unfairly? Have you been treated unkindly? Have things come your way you didn't deserve? Me too. But through Jesus, God is with you. So forget what has happened to you. And focus on what God is doing in you. The question I leave you tonight is not if if he is with you. In Christ, he's already promised that. The question is, will you be with him? It's one thing to believe him, but it is another thing entirely to trust him. Tonight, if you haven't begun the process of trusting him, and that means to do what he said to do. To believe him enough where you act on it. Whether that's repenting, whether that's confessing him in faith, or putting him on in baptism. Or maybe, having done those things, maybe you have sin in your life you need to repent of now. Or maybe you have something in your life we can pray for you, or encourage you, or help you. Whatever need you might have, I hope that you won't hold on to it any longer. Forget what's happened to you, and let God work within you. Come tonight, as together we stand and sing.